Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you here this morning. Let's go to God now in prayer and ask him for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you trusting you and believing upon you and knowing that our our sufficiency has to come from you because it doesn't come certainly from us. We pray quite simply, Father, that you by your spirit would come and meet us in our need and minister to us as we look to your word. We pray that you would work within us to give us eyes to see what is true and ears that can hear it and hearts that would receive it. We pray that you would go about doing the supernatural work that only you can do of showing us our sin and driving us to your son and sustaining and strengthening our faith in him. And so we pray that you would do that even in our midst this morning. And we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So friends, this introduction is is going to be a little bit longer than normal. Um, I hope that you can track with me. It's a good thing for us to consider God's law, our lives, what we need, and what's good for us. A biblical sexual ethic, which by that I mean one man, one woman in covenant relationship for a lifetime, is not about being holier than that. A lot of times that's how it's depicted. That's how it's perceived. We get this biblical sexual ethic from God's word. And we genuinely believe that it's God's design and thereby honors him and is good for us. It is not this biblical sexual ethic. One man, one woman in the covenant of marriage is not about power. It is not about oppression. It is not about imperialism or some kind of patriarchal way of thinking. I think it's clear that if we look around, we have reached a point in our current cultural moment where this biblical sexual ethic is seen as savage. It is seen as barbaric. Consider even a new hit song by an artist named Cardi B. Some in the audience may be familiar. This song is called W.A.P., I leave it to you in terms of the lyrics and the content of it. Suffice it to say that it is, it's, t- it's a tough even read to read the lyrics in some ways. It uh, certainly pushes the bounds of even things that we have seen called art and put forth in our society. There was a lot of angst about releasing it even from the record label that did so. And what's interesting is that as people have listened to this song, it was the number one downloaded song on Apple Music a week or two ago. As people have processed it and listened to it, there are many who would offer this song as a kind of sex positive anthem for women. The reason I even bring that up is that it sounds frankly insane to the modern ear that we would ever limit the expression of our sexuality. It sounds insane to the modern ear that we would ever suggest that there is an appropriate framework in which our sexual expression is to be enjoyed. And if there are limits 
being placed on my sexual expression, the question has to be asked, well, says who? And that is perhaps an even more frightening question. You see, the religion of our culture, the religion of humanity has not really been very different than this in some respects throughout human history, but the religion of our culture certainly goes something like this. Look inside yourself, see who you are, go be that person and don't let anybody stop you. And along comes God's word saying something very different. There's a collision. But to be clear, sex is a good thing. It is a tremendously good gift from God. And it is powerful. And so like any good, powerful thing, when it is used in ways that God has not designed it for, it becomes very self-destructive. It produces almost unbelievable amounts of pain in people's lives. And we think as, as fallen man, we think that a way to mitigate that pain is to just stop everybody from saying or questioning anything about what we are doing sexually. And in addition to that, we need to get everybody to celebrate an alternative view that nothing that I ever do sexually is wrong because it never could be wrong. God's law, God's word is clear about limits on our sexual expression. And here's the deal too. All of us, everybody who sits here today transgresses that law and transgresses that word that God has given us. Christians understand that Christ has satisfied and atoned for our sin, even our sexual sin. And we understand that Christ has provided us with his own righteousness that covers us. And thereby we are accepted in the sight of God. And so this is big because of Christ and only because of Christ, God's law no longer accuses, nor does it condemn the Christian. But for those who are not trusting Christ, are not covered by him. God's law continues to accuse and God's law continues to condemn. And so men seek to silence God's law. We try to suppress it and just speak over it. But the louder we try to speak over God's law, the more it keeps accusing and the more it keeps condemning. Friends, I would offer this, that at the heart of all human lawlessness is a haunting suspicion that God's law is right, but we don't want it to be. And so we think the best thing that we can do is run as far and fast as possible in the other direction, screaming as we do and celebrating our freedom as we do. I don't think that you need me to tell you that that doesn't end well. It doesn't go well. Also, in the interest of clarity, when it comes to our sexuality, it is not that Christians have our house in order and the rest of the world doesn't. That is not the message. 
Far from it. Rather, it is that we know that we don't have our house in order. And we trust Christ for that. And then we seek in Christ to have our lives conform to the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. A couple of more comments by way of introduction before we get to Proverbs 7. When I use the phrase purity culture in the church, purity culture, some here today are familiar with it. That was and sort of is a thing in the evangelical church. And I think it's fair to say that a decent amount of the fruit that it has borne has not been good. There was a time, especially for younger people, when basically to be a good Christian was to have a quiet time, not look at porn and not have sex. And you were good. Many people were harmed by that, no doubt. Many here today may have been harmed by that. In this kind of purity culture thing, there was often a lack of gospel and there was often a tremendous confusion of law and gospel that harmed people. But as unhelpful as purity culture is, just like anything else, we do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uprightness and purity does exist when it comes to our sexuality. Now, that is a wildly unpopular thing to say. Righteousness and holiness are to be sought after when it comes to our sexual lives. And there is much grace, much grace in Christ for the failures. Our pursuit of obedience in this area, as always, is driven by God's love and grace to us in Christ. God's, God is very clear that he loves us. He is very clear that he has told us what is good for us. And also on the flip side, what will destroy us. And then we proclaim and herald that Christ has paid for every failing. He has given us his own holiness and we are his. And it is in that context that we pursue obedience always. And it's in that context that we pursue obedience even in this area. So it's with all that in mind that we now turn to Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7. We are making our way, kind of resuming a series through Proverbs 1 to 9. We will be looking today at Proverbs 7. There is a lot of value in preaching sequentially through books of the Bible because in one sense, we allow God to set the agenda and God's word to set the agenda for our church, not my opinion. And it also means that we're going to preach the entire counsel of Scripture. There are a number of passages, today's passage included, that you probably would not choose if you're just going to do a one-off message. I doubt that this would be my text if I was going to go and just try to encourage another church somewhere. But in God's providence, CBC, we find ourselves here today in Proverbs 7. And as always, we trust God that this is good for us and that God will do his work through his word because he is faithful to do so. As you're turning to Proverbs 7, either in your hard copy or maybe on a Bible app on your phone, let me summarize Proverbs 7 in a sentence. Keep the commandments close to you and make wisdom your companion so that you will not be lured into sexual sin because it will destroy your life. Let me say that again. Keep the commandments close to you and make wisdom your companion so that you will not be lured into sexual sin because it 
will destroy your life. Let's look now to Proverbs 7. This is the word of God. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman and the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not, do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. With bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. We thank God for his word today and every day. Keep in mind as we look to this text that Solomon, we've seen this over and over again, is writing as a proverbial father to a proverbial son. And so we would certainly understand that this text applies both directions to men and women. The text is very straightforward. I think, frankly, many people would be astonished that something like this was even in the Bible. That's another conversation. But the text is not hard to understand. The vast majority of it is Solomon describing a very gripping picture of what it looks like to fall into this kind of sin and what it means for someone's life. So what we're gonna do is just look at the text together and then we're gonna reflect on it. And I will try to give you those points of reflection as we get to that portion. In verses one to five, Solomon again, as he has done before, exhorts his son to treasure and keep his commandments. He says that if his son does so, it will go well for him. He exhorts his son to value wisdom and insight. He's been saying this over and over as well. Wisdom is good and wisdom is valuable. Treasure it, son. Because if you do that, it will protect you. In a general sense and in a particular way in this chapter, wisdom and insight will keep you from sexual sin. 
Then in verses 6 through 23 is that gripping picture that I've mentioned a moment ago of a young man being lured into sexual sin. Let's just look at these verses together. Solomon says in verses 6 through 9, essentially I've looked out of my house through the lattice and I have seen this scenario unfold. I've seen a, a young man in this case who lacks sense, he's immature, perhaps, passing along in the street at twilight, in the evening hours. Then beginning in verse 10, a woman shows up on the scene. He describes her in verses 10, 11, and 12. And we see in verse 13 that she grabs the man and kisses him and then says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So I've gone and done these things that needed to be done. And now I have come to look for you. I've come for you. I've sought you eagerly and now I've found you. And then beginning in verse 16, she begins to seduce him, to invite him to her home. Her husband is gone. She says a lot of appealing things about how she's prepared her bed. She says a lot of appealing things about what they can do until the sun rises. And she says, don't worry, my husband's not going to be home for a while. There's no way we're going to be found out. We're not going to be caught. Verse 21. With much seductive speech, Solomon says, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. This is how these things often go. There, is, there are situations, there are relationships that evolve, that develop. And there's oftentimes this kind of interaction and smooth talk, as Solomon calls it. But then look at verses 22 and 23. These are sobering. These are the kind of, like the punchline of the proverb. They kind of almost knock the air out of you, right, when you read it. It's kind of that oh, moment. He says, all at once, this young man follows her. And then he says, as an ox goes to the slaughter. This young man following her and going with her is like when an animal is being led unwittingly and unknowingly to the slaughter to die. He says, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. An animal is caught in some kind of brush, perhaps, and is now a sitting duck, as the term goes and then an arrow pierces its liver and kills it. Or as a bird rushes into a snare to be captured. He does not know, this young man, does not know that what he is doing will cost him his life. It will cost him everything. It will ruin him. Solomon essentially here is saying to his proverbial sons, sons, this will destroy you. This is what we would understand, brothers and sisters, as the second use of God's law. Just by way of a brief overview, the first use of God's law is to show us our sin and thereby drive us to Christ. The third use in Christ is to guide us in our living. The second use, though, is to restrain our corruption. And what God does throughout his word, he will give us his commandments. He will give us his law. And he tells us, if you obey them, it will go well for you. But if you do not obey them, it will not go well. That's the second use of the law. And that's what we have here. Solomon is saying, don't go here because it will not be good for your life. 
Then in verses 24 to 27, Solomon again pleads with his sons to listen to him. He reiterates the seriousness of these things. In verse 25, he just says, do not let your hearts be turned to adultery and sexual sin. Verse 26, for the adulteress or the adulterer, we could say, has, has laid many low. All her slain are a mighty throng. Many have fallen in this way. And then verse 27, if adultery and sexual sin is the course that you take, it will lead to death and not life. It's serious. So brothers and sisters, in the time that we have left, let's reflect on the text together. I have four headings, four headings for our reflection. Number one, we are all weak. Number one, we are all weak. And in particular, I mean when it comes to this. As I've said before and will continue to say, sex is the undefeated champion of the world. No one gets in the ring with sex and wins. All we need to do to be shown that that's the case is read the history of God's people in the Old Testament. We don't need extra biblical literature. It's very clear that all of us, if put in the right set of circumstances, are capable of falling sexually. To deny that for any of us would be naive and dangerous. It's important that we realize that a significant piece of growth and maturation and a significant piece of sanctification is self-awareness, is realizing that this is bad for me and I tend to this thing or I have this proclivity and therefore I need to get upstream of this. We need to watch ourselves certainly and watch over one another. We need to seek avoiding, we need to seek to avoid, excuse me, putting ourselves in situations where we will fall. Because I think if we're honest, when it comes to sexual failure in terms of sin, I don't know that there's ever been a situation that any of us have found ourselves in where we did not know exactly what was going to happen. We do, we know. And so part of what we need is help from one another to not go there. We need brothers and sisters to walk with in the light. We need each other. We need honest and aware conversation. We need encouragement. We need exhortation. We need reminders sometimes. Like, hey brother, be, be mindful of that. Sister, be careful of that. We need that in the church. Number two. Reflection number two, sin is never worth it. Sin is never worth it. The cravings of our flesh can be at times frighteningly strong. Is that not true? They can. They can be unrelenting. If they chase after us, they have claws that dig into us and won't let go. And at times, all we can see is the gratification that acting on our desires would bring to our flesh. This is Satan's MO, by the way, to entice us with that. 
But in the aftermath, we all know this too. In the aftermath of sin, there is emptiness, not fulfillment. The pleasure is quickly gone and then pain ensues. Sexual sin in a unique way brings wreckage upon our lives. In the context of a marriage, it can be particularly brutal. But even if you're not married, we're not married, the danger is just as real. There are plenty of people who could testify that the fallout and the consequences of sexual sin can last our entire lives on earth. And this is what Solomon continues to say in Proverbs. Reflection number three. God's law and repentance. God's law and repentance. Let's reflect on that together. By the way, this is just so you guys know, this kind of material is not the easiest thing for a preacher to talk about because I am with you. I am weak like you. I'm a sinner just like all of you. And so we very much are sitting under God's word. And I feel, if you feel this, I feel like my head is underwater right now. And I need some air. Air is coming. Just hang on and track. So God's law and repentance. Let's think about this. None of us, we've been really clear about this in a number of contexts. None of us have ever met God's standard. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest place to go to think about what God requires, even in this way. He references God's commandment. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Then he unpacks and exposits the law and applies it to the hearts of men and says, but I say to you that if you even look at a woman or look at another person lustfully, you have broken the law. You are guilty. He says also in the Sermon on the Mount that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees who were rock stars when it came to external conformity. He says also in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. For many of us, the cravings of our flesh are perhaps most apparent when it comes to our sexuality. Our guilt is clear. Our corruption is obvious. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And we thought about how the fear of the Lord is reverence for God. It's an understanding of who he is and what he requires. Which leads us inevitably to repentance. What is repentance? It's a word that's used often in Scripture, in particular in the context of the New Testament. The word that's used for repentance means literally a change of mind. Well, a change of mind about what? It's a change of mind about God, about who he is, about what he requires, about his ways with us. It's a change of mind about ourselves, about who we are about our standing before God, about what is good for us, about what is bad for us, and about what we need. And it's a change of mind about Christ and the way of salvation. Scripture is very clear that repentance is granted by God. So if we were to 
really think rightly about it, we would say that God repents us. God repents us. This, brothers and sisters, is the difference between Christianity and like the church and those outside. We still sin. The difference between the church and the world is not that the world sins and the church doesn't. That's bananas. That's crazy talk. We still sin in the church. Sometimes terribly. But we, by God's grace, have come to agree with God. One way that I might sum up the difference between a person who is a Christian and a person who is not is that the Christian has sided with God against his sin rather than siding with his sin against God. And when that change of mind happens, we flee to Christ, which brings us to number four. Christ is able and mighty to save. Amen, somebody. Christ is able and mighty to save. This is particularly sweet when we consider areas of our lives where our sin has maybe been especially painful or especially consequential. We carry around all kinds of guilt. We carry around shame. We feel disgrace even over things that we've done over things that we still think about or crave at points. There are a number of ways that we could consider what Christ has done, but I, I want to look back briefly to Proverbs 6 and verse 33. This is what we looked at last week. I want to look at Proverbs 6:33 and comment on this verse for just a moment. You'll see there that Solomon writes that in verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Sounds a lot like the things we're considering today. Then he says he will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. What does he mean? Track with me for a moment. Solomon in the context of Proverbs 6.33 is referring to public disgrace in the covenant community of the nation of Israel. Remember when this was written? The law of Moses still reigns. The covenant made with David is a thing. The nation of Israel is still God's covenant community. Under the law of Moses, when someone broke the law in particular ways, they became unclean and were therefore cut off from the covenant community. And so then we ask this question, all right, well, how were they restored? Somebody might rightly answer the sacrificial system. Yes. What was the sacrificial system for in its immediate context in the nation of Israel? What did it do? It was to make people quite simply ceremonially clean. It was to take away their uncleanness so they could be a part of the covenant community again. But it's important that we would understand that the sacrificial system did not and could not take away sins. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says. Hebrews 10 verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
Very straightforward. So what was the sacrificial system about ultimately? It pointed God's people to the perfect sacrifice who would come and actually take away their sins. Not just make them clean, ceremonially so, but would save them. In the new covenant, under the covenant of grace, our sins and disgrace and dishonor and shame are covered and they're taken away by Christ. We are cleansed, we are forgiven, we're redeemed, we're declared righteous all by faith in Christ. Now it is certainly true that our sins leave scars. Our sins leave wounds that remain in this life. Our sins sometimes bring consequences that don't go away necessarily. But, and this is an important contrast, but in spite of that, we do not have to bear guilt anymore. It's been taken away. We do not bear shame anymore. Christ has covered it. We do not bear and carry around disgrace with us anymore because Jesus has taken that all away. He has removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. Praise be to his name. If you have your Bibles or if you have your, your Bible app with you, as we conclude, turn to the letter to the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 and verse 11. Chapter 9 and verse 11. The writer to the Hebrews says there, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That's another way to think about the sacrificial system, the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 10, we see there that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He writes, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Don't miss that. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That'll preach. Now, in Hebrews chapter 7, the author tells us that Jesus has become a priest on the basis of his indestructible life. He says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And then this in Hebrews 7, 23. 
and following. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Thank God for Jesus Christ. He is our only hope and he is the only one who can take away all of our guilt and our shame and our disgrace. Saints, I don't know everything that you've ever done. You don't know everything that I've ever done. But I can promise to you and you can promise to me based on the word of God that we cannot out the power of Christ to save us. We cannot do it. For those who are in Christ by faith, we cannot out his mercy. Trust him as you sit here today, stung by God's law, grieved over things that you've thought, things that you've wanted, things that you've done. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. His death is sufficient to cancel all of your debt. And his life is sufficient to be your righteousness. And as if we needed anything else, we're told in God's word that he is our great high priest who ever lives and pleads for us. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer as we will make preparations to come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you. We confess that we are sinners. We confess that none of us have kept your good and holy and perfect law. We confess that many times in our humanity, we bristle against what you say is good for us. Father, we pray very simply for your grace. We pray that you would forgive us for our sins, that you would cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness, and that you would not lead us into temptation, that you would keep us from stumbling, and that you would give us grace that we might live unto you. None of us are able for these things, so we trust in you alone. We thank you for Christ, for what he has accomplished on our behalf, the fact that sinners even like us can have an unshakable and infallible hope in him. Father, we pray that you would continue to minister to us as we come to the table. Remind us of the certainty of what Christ has done for us. That just as the bread and the juice go into our mouths this morning, Christ has died, has lived and was raised for us in our place. Come and sustain, strengthen, confirm our faith and make us more like your son, we pray. And we pray in his name. Amen.